This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Uh, started, you know, controlling, checking the controls, and then started feeling the yaw at that point in time. And then I looked over and saw no oil pressure in the right engine. And uh, that's when I realized that I had an engine failure, not a control failure. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. My co-host, Kristen Bodner, is on maternity leave. Tyler, who's our guest this morning? All right, we have a very special guest for our audience today, and that's our very own Mark Baker, president and CEO of AOPA. Mark's been flying for over 35 years with more than 10,000 hours in the left seat and a commercial pilot certificate with single and multi-engine land and seaplane ratings. He's also got a rotorcraft rating and type ratings in the Cessna Citation 500 and 525. A pretty impressive history for sure. Thanks, Tyler. Let's listen in to the hangar flying we held with Mark Baker. Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. Good to have you here. So you have flown and owned over 100 airplanes in your 35-year flying career. And interesting, you've got 10,000 hours, all of that in general aviation flying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have bought some uh, fuel along the way. Uh, but it's been a great almost now 40 years of flying and, and uh, haven't had the opportunity to fly a lot of different and variety of general aviation airplanes. I'm still not uh, satisfied that I've done them all or learned them all, but I, I have the quest to try and find a way to uh, touch just about every general aviation airplane that's, uh, that's around. And across the board, you've used general aviation in your business. You've commuted with it. You've done it for fun. You've done backcountry flying. You've done high-altitude jet flying. You've, you've been across the spectrum in general aviation and used the airplanes for all they're meant to u- be used for. Yeah, that's the, the, the thing that is uh, interesting is there's no one perfect airplane, no one perfect uh, kind of outcome of how you use an aircraft. Uh, it can be used across a variety of life, uh, but uh, not to forget the, the valuable just fun factor. Yeah. So all the airplanes you've owned. What are some of your favorites? Well, I've got a couple of favorites, and it, again, depends what you're doing. But I've used my Super Cub, uh, and I've owned a, a half a dozen different Super Cubs, but this one particular one I bought from the original owner. He bought it new in 1953, and I've had that airplane for nearly 25 years. I've had it restored once, uh, flown it from the bottom of Mexico to the top of Hudson Bay, Florida, New York, all over the Rocky Mountains on everything from amphibious floats to uh, wheels and snow skis. Yeah. 
Great, great airplane. I'm a fan. I know you are. (laughs) (laughs) And so now you're in a Howard. Yeah. Well, I've always had an affinity for round engines. I've owned a a number of airplanes with round engines. And I think of that technology design in the the 20s, if you want to call it technology. Yeah, it's amazing. The the big round Pratt-Whitney motors uh, and how good they are. And I've owned what they call the 985 Pratt & Whitney, which was designed in the late 20s on everything from a Beaver to currently I own a Howard. I've had a Beach 18. I've had 13, uh, 1340s on T6s over the years, and I even had a uh, Waco uh, that had a uh, – geez, I'm trying to remember the round – oh, Jacobs on that one. Hmm. So uh, I have an affinity for the sound of a round motor. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is quite a sound, certainly the romance of flight in, that, in those round engines. So, um, Mark, in all those airplanes you've owned and flown – can you talk to us a little bit about transitioning from one airplane to another and, and how do you do that in terms of to make sure you're the safest pilot you can be whenever you step up or step over or around to a different airplane? You know, I think it's, uh, it's served me well to talk to people that have been around that particular model uh, and have a lot of experience on it. And 99.9% of the people will share with you in, in five seconds uh, the key factors uh, about those aircraft. So I've learned a lot from fellow aviators. And then I try to read as much as I can, whether it's from the POH or whatever exists. Some, some of these 1940s airplanes don't have much of a POH. Uh, yeah. But you can still learn a lot from people that have been around them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, becoming very familiar with, of course, the walk-around which is standard to most aircraft, but everyone has a little nuance to understand what those nuances are and where to look for the wear, the tear, uh, the things that could be a risk to flight. And then, uh, you know, getting inside after you've done your, your whole walk around and gotten familiar with it is just getting familiar with the layout. And I sit in an airplane for a pretty long time, actually, before I take that first model for a ride. And I've kind of understood the what I call the critical ingredients. Where, where's the fuel? And how do you read it? Uh, what, where's the engine monitoring? Where's that at? And then finally, you know, what are the flight controls like and what are the trims that, you know, trimmed and flaps? Uh, and every airplane seems to be similar in that regard. They have some mm-hmm. form of that and uh, becoming familiar with that. And then go easy. <laughs> it sort of reinforces the value of, uh, of hangar flying. Sitting around talking to other pilots who've flown in the area you're going to fly in or flown the airplane you've flown in. And just that sort of informal conversation, there's a lot of learning that goes on there, don't you think? I do. I tell you, you know, Saturday afternoon at the airport is never wasted, I'll tell you that. On top of all the things you do garner from other people that are willing to share backcountry experiences or in the case of rotorcraft, I've learned more from fellow helicopter pilots than I have from reading any of the books. Uh, you just learn about what their experiences were positive and which ones were going to be a problem. And you told me the other day that you've flown in a lot of, you know, complicated airplanes and simple airplanes, but they kind of boil down to three things that you're always thinking when you sit in the airplane for the first time to try to, try to understand it. Fuel, fire, and flight controls. That's it. I do. I do. I think of it exactly that way, which is, you know, these are the critical things on any aircraft. Uh, you better know where they are, what the readings are, what the indicators are, and exactly how to use uh, and interpret those three critical issues. And... Uh, you know, those things are germane across every aircraft. Yeah. And not, and not only have you transitioned to different airplanes, but you'll transition in and out of different airplanes from your 185, Super Cub, Baron, TBM in the same week. Some retractable gear, some fixed gear, some complex, some not. So how do you, do, how do you, how do you transition that day to day to make sure you're flying safely uh, in that kind of environment? Well, actually, a perfect weekend to me is a trifecta, uh, <laughs> flying three different aircraft. The hat trick. Yeah, in, in the same day, ideally, or certainly over the weekend. And 
Um, you know, by using those same common formulas about where are your fuel, what's your fire, what's your flight controls, uh, are really just critical about that. And I, as you know, I'll call gear down and welded in a 185. Yep, you do. Yep. And just because it makes you think about everything when you transition between each airplane. Touch it, see it, verify it. And so far, uh, in over 10,000 hours, it kept me safe by doing that. Yeah. So in 10,000 hours and all those airplanes, you must have found yourself in some challenging situations before. Can you, can you talk through some of them? I have. And, and I think this goes to the fact of being always curious about how you become safer and more aware of what the issues were and some of the stuff that you guys do at ASI to make sure we share in the learnings. I've been a big fan of reading for all of the stuff that's out there and today listening, um, uh, podcasts and such. What went wrong? And, you know, I have had, let's see, Three complete engine failures and twin engines over the last 30 years. Uh, a Baron just last year where the engine quit right after takeoff or seized up, actually, uh, in the dark. You know, that, that's one of those scenarios where you say, you better get, get right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I also tell you that, you know, flown a, a twins for lots of years and lots of experience in them. Um, I think there can be a very safe aircraft, and I think it handled properly. Uh, did take me back to the airport. The toughest part of the morning actually was taxiing it because it's impossible to taxi those <laughs> things with one engine turning. I found that out when I lost an engine in a King Air one time after takeoff. Did did fine coming back in and landing. Not so fine on the taxi back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I, I rolled up to the end of the runway and I had to get my tug from my hangar and go tug it back to the hangar because there's no way I could make the turn. Um, but it was, you know, practicing and, and understanding exactly how to identify, verify, and uh, you know, take control of that that aircraft and get it back to the back to the ramp. So can we talk about that night uh, engine failure in the Baron uh, scenario a little bit? What happened there? Well, you know, we never really know exactly what caused the engine uh, oil pressure relief valve to open up. Uh, there was a, they found a little piece of metal in there that looked like a cotter pin uh, in the autopsy of the motor $50,000 later. Um, but it, it was one of those dark mornings um, leaving Anoka uh, County uh, probably around 4, 35 o'clock in the morning, uh, well before the sunrise. And as I rotated, I'll never forget the feeling. There was early spring day. There was lots of water, and I saw two uh, ducks fly over the the uh, wing. I went, oh boy, glad I missed them. And then the airplane started vibrating as I climbed through a thousand feet, uh, vibrating a lot. Hmm. And I thought I had gotten some surface damage, control surface damage to the airplane. Yeah, so you thought you'd hit the ducks. Actually. I thought for yeah. sure I got the tail yeah. uh, on the ducks because it was really vibrating quite a lot. And still, you know, it was an old Baron, 1966 or seven. Uh, so the lighting isn't ideal. Uh, started, you know, controlling, checking the controls, and then started feeling the yaw at that point in time. Mm. And then I looked over and saw no oil pressure in the right engine. And uh, that's when I realized that I had an engine failure, not a control failure. Yeah. And again, you have to do that pretty quickly and, and maintain uh, control of the aircraft. And I was talking to Minneapolis Center, picking up my IFR for Frederick, actually. And I s- said, uh, uh, I need to return to the airport. I think I've got an engine failure. And the guy said, well, uh, clear to descend. I said, no, I'm at 2,000 feet. I'm going to keep my altitude <laughs> until I get closer to the airport. So don't always follow that instruction without questioning it because mm. altitude is important when you're trying to figure things out. And uh, finally figured it out and, and uh, uh, feathered the engine, caged the engine, fuel, you know, the whole thing, the whole, go through the checklist at that point in time. Were you flying solo? By myself, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it was climbing through 3,000 feet when I finally said, I'm heading back to the airport. Because our Baron will climb pretty fast with one person on board. And I uh, got back and, again, landed it without any difficulty at all. Uh, and, again, uh, keeping the airspeed, keeping your wits about you in the dark, trying to make sure you've got everything done. You're down all the other things. Yeah. Uh, as you return, the tower wasn't even open yet. 
uh, the morning I landed. And like I said, the toughest part of the morning, the most frustrating part, other than the money, was the ability, the inability to taxi the thing back to the, to the yeah. hangar. Yeah. So interesting there, Mark, in that your first uh, indication was was the shutter, was yep. the vibration. And because of other factors, your, your initial reaction was to think something totally different than what was actually going on. So one of the important parts of a, an emergency scenario is to make sure you take the time to think through it and not react without, you know, sort of verifying. And, and it's a balance, isn't it? On the one hand, you don't have all day. Right. On the other hand, you can't afford snap quick uh, actions that, that actually cause you more problems. That's right. You know, and, and I've, I've thought about moments like that in some of the other situations. But in that particular situation where I was convinced it was a control service because yeah. I saw those ducks. And uh, so I was still trying to figure out what I had for control. And then I felt the yaw. And then I looked to make sure I had airspeed once I started to feel the yaw and just pushed everything up uh, until I identified making sure that I had airspeed because airspeed in any aircraft is your friend yeah. when you get a situation like that. And then, you know, go back to altitude and whatever you got. Yeah. So for interesting, the first thing you felt where you knew it was an engine scenario was that yaw, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and, that, and your instincts tell you right then, okay, I know what this problem is. Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, you, you look at your manifold pressure, it's still there. You get all that stuff and all the – see, you're at, on a Baron or Bonanza, you're, you're – uh, Oil and engine instruments are way down to the right side. Yeah. So they're not in your full view where you're looking for something that you indicate. And again, you, your mind says it's something else. And yeah. uh, then, of course, it becomes very familiar when you get that much yaw. So you're at night uh, scenario. You're, you're in a twin right after takeoff. Were you in IMC? No. Fortunately, I was not in IMC. Yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. there was a little help there. Yeah. And you had a lot of gas, yep. w- w- which also helps, right? <laughs> Usually. To, to a certain point. Yeah, right. I mean um, – and so um, from there, when you had that engine scenario, in- engine out scenario, do you think there's some situations in an airplane where you have memorized the procedures you're going to use, and would that be one of them? That is one of the ones that yeah. you do when you go to the engine out on a twin. Uh, you want to, you know, verify, identify, verify rather, um, and do it slowly because yeah. you pull. You know, there's so many scenarios if you've read about yeah. pulling the good engine back, right? And that is not a scenario you want to do at night. Yeah, uh, in a light twin or any any twin aircraft. Yeah. So do I really just feeling that throttle and and checking it? Uh, you could quickly tell that was the problem, mm-hmm. and then then you go back to your course. Okay, now I know what I got. I'm gonna deal with it slowly. So as soon as you pulled that throttle back, the vibration stopped somewhat. Yeah, actually, it was, it was vibrating so hard. I went to feather pretty quickly after okay. I did it, identified that engine. Yeah. So to get that propeller stopped and cut off. Okay. Because otherwise it was gonna. It was vibrating yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, you bring up a good a good point there in terms of your single pilot. You're 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 at night, which I consider IMC flying. I, I consider yeah. flying. At oh, night, it was, it was a dark flying. night. And so, um, and now you've got to make sure you handle this situation right after takeoff. But you've also also got to make sure you verify. So you don't have a co-pilot verifying you with the checklist, right? Nope. You're taking your time. You don't have all day. That's right. But at the same time, you got to make sure you you did isolate the problem correctly. You're acting on the correct engine, and then uh, and then you move from there. That's right. It's a, it is really that's the memory parts of the items you know to identify, and then verify, and then you got time to think about where you're going to do next. Yeah. And slowing yourself down just a little bit, and always you know in that situation, paying attention to airspeed and attitude. Uh, what's going on with the aircraft? Uh, when is it's busy. And yeah. when you're by yourself, you, you, you haven't got time to go grab a checklist. you got to yeah. get that stuff in your head. And at that point, did you then notify ATC that you got a problem yes. at, at, at some point in there once you once you felt like you were under control? and Yeah, I had just picked up the IFR, and, and they said they cleared me up to eight or 9,000 feet, you know, 120 heading, da-da-da-da, direct tails. 
And uh, that's when I called him back and said, I got to get back to the airport. And he said, clear to descend. And I, I'll never forget that part of it because, yeah. you know, um, with the experience I've built up over the years, I say, wait a second. Why would I want to descend when I'm now 20 miles from the airport? Ah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you can tell the air traffic control, no, I don't want to do that because and they were very accommodating at that point in time. But that's their normal, you know, response is clear to descend. Ah. Yeah. Really critical part on on your part to realize you're the pilot in command. You know the scenario that's happening. So you've got to make the right decisions and, and, you know, the controllers will do the best they can, but they don't have all the situational awareness that you do in the airplane. That's right. And, and you know, they're, they're trying to be helpful. Yeah. But in this particular situation, that wouldn't have been a better answer. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So did you, when you came in, now you're, you're, you hold your altitude until you get into a point where you're, you're more comfortable that you can make the airplane and by this, or the airport. And by this time, you've had a little more chance to verify exactly what your situation is, get it completely under control, run through your checklist. And so now it's a matter of a single engine approach at night, you know, to, to come back in and land. You carry extra speed in that kind of scenario, or do you pretty much fly it on speed? You know, I fly it on speed. You know, I was lightly loaded, uh, yeah. just myself on board. And, you know, it was a VFR, so I saw the airport, you know, from 10 miles out. So it's really a manner of just keeping your trim right. You know you're not going to be able to use your autopilot in that situation on an old burn. So you're just going to fly the thing, and, and then you're going to spend a little extra time making sure you got your gear down, your flaps to approach until your you know, landing is assured, and then you go to full full uh, full flaps after your landing is assured. Yeah. So it's a, you're still trying to figure out what else is out there. You know, you've got other things going on in your mind. I hope there's no fire happening out there, something that you just don't know. Your mind kind of thinks about all the other scenarios that what else could be happening. As you, as you want to stay situationally aware, first thing is fly the airplane. Yeah. And then you made sure, despite all that's going on, that you don't forget the basics. In other words, your gear's down, your flap's down. I know you you have a vociferous appetite for safety information because right. you text me a lot about it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and uh, and we've, you, both, you and I both have read scenarios where the pilot got the airplane under control and then did something like forgot to put the gear down because they were so distracted by the engine out or something. That's right. And yet, and if you've done enough of this practice um, before you get to the real thing, it's really not an, an event unless you turn it into one. You yeah. know, it's uh, one of you good about your wits and you know what you're doing and you check yourself and then recheck yourself. It's not really a big deal. It's one of the things I've always said about twin engines. I don't know how many have gone home and never become an event that we read about, mm-hmm. which, which I prefer to do. Uh, is not read about those events. Uh, so I think a twin can be handled in a very safe manner and take you home. That's a good way to think about it. Don't turn it into an event bigger than it is. That's right. Yeah. yeah it's just a financial event at this point. <laughs> but that's also, so so you land and and, uh, and handle that scenario. Uh, but then there's also a scenario you had where you lost an engine when you only had an engine. Yeah, I've had a couple of uh, single engines that have not, or came uh, became uncooperative, as I like to call it. <laughs> uh, one in particular was a it was a Father's Day weekend about uh, half a dozen years ago or so, and a T6 that I had recently bought that had only a 55-hour uh, overhauled engine on it. Mm. And I had taken a guy by the name of Waldo Anderson. Many of you will know it because he's probably given about 20,000 check rides. Uh, I decided to go follow up with a bunch of T6s uh, northern Minnesota. I think it was um, oh, Rush City. Uh, we were rendezvousing and a uh, nice little breakfast and pancakes uh, and, and decided to take off from there and head back to Anoka County. And uh, a good friend of mine, Greg Herrick, was flying alongside of us with a, with a guy with a camera uh, because he was up there for the event and, and uh, wanted to take lots of pictures. And after we left uh, the airport and we headed back to Anoka, uh, I started to feel a little tremble in the airplane. And then Waldo points out that the, uh, 
the oil pressure in the back cockpit, as you know, T6s have duplicate instruments front and back, uh, was starting to go down. And I pointed and looked at mine and went, mine too, Waldo. But once again, your first indication was you felt a little bit of a rumble in the engine. Didn't quite feel right. Didn't quite feel right. One climb yeah. quite right. Yeah. It was, everything wasn't feeling quite the same. Yeah. And you could talk to Greg Herrick about it later. He, he knew that I had something going on because I typically would climb up, you know, get to my uh, cruise altitude. And it just wasn't climbing right. And I started to check things. And that's when Waldo called out the low oil pressure. And I had oil pressure. And he said, and then his temperatures were going way high. And I said, Waldo, at this very moment, we probably have four bad gauges, which was make way of lightening the uh, conversation because we didn't have four bad gauges. We had <laughs> yeah. a bad engine. <laughs> yeah. That would pretty, be pretty unusual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I asked uh, Greg, I said, give me a steer for an airport. He said, Cambridge, 270, like like 15 miles. I said, uh, closer. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, at that point in time, I went through the normal, um, you know, checking the mag, mixture, tank, all the stuff that you normally do. On a engine out. We had about a thousand feet of altitude above the ground. And uh, it was became a glider at that point in time. Mm. And uh, so now you're looking in a pretty close proximity of suitable landing areas, not an airport, unfortunately. And I was looking out to everywhere, and all I could find it was over a bunch of trees and swamps and kind of northern mid Minnesota. And uh, started setting up for a small pasture that had a horse in it. Yeah, I'll never forget it, with a tree down, kind of laying next to a pond. And I made the decision. A lot of uh, friends and warbirds questioned the decision whether it was right or not. It turned out to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting the landing gear down because I was, wanted to make sure I could uh, sling it sideways if I got into this. was going to be less than 600 feet of roll mm-hmm. um, and trying to do something to burn up energy, uh, which I can't have read about. If you but can. your decision point there, especially in these warbirds, is a, a lot of times they will flip, right, yep. with the gear down. So you're trying to decide, is it better to put the gear down and try to ride it out? Is it ter- terrain that rough? Or is it better to keep the gear up and sort of slide it? That's your decision. Right? That's right. Because if you flip, you can't get out of the airplane, right? That's, <laughs> That's the problem. Right. That's yeah. correct. You know, well, you know, uh, speaking of flipping it, I asked uh, Waldo, because I already had tightened up my seatbelts. Uh, there's a there's an inertia reel harness that you go to lock on an older T6. And uh, asked him to do the same thing. And I had already moved my canopy to open because that is the case. You yeah. want to be able to get there. There's a headrest in a, in a roll bar, if you will, uh, in both cockpits are, uh, there. And I kept saying, get your canopy open. He kept saying, what? Yeah. Now I've got to take care of him. I said, get your canopy open in case that we flip this bugger, something like that. Uh, and uh, then I heard this canopy slam, and he was now open now, which makes it a little harder to communicate with your backseat. Yeah this point in time, but a lot better idea. But is this all happening from the time I called uh, engine out needing a field to the time I was standing next to the airplane, uh, two minutes elapsed. Wow. And mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. it all on lapsed film, which wasn't the intent, mm-hmm. but we do. And so you think about all the things you got to do in two minutes. Yeah. Uh, and you're on the ground. And standing there's no time to pull out a checklist and reference a checklist item by item, right? That, that's that's part of the uh, the thinking here is the preparation that, that pilots should think about. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you got a windmilling engine. You're trying to shut it down, and it's still windmilling a little bit, but it's something wrong. But there's no power coming out of the thing. And you get the fuel off and all that kind of stuff. At what point did you give up on trying to restart the engine and just accept that you had a dead engine? Do you have an altitude in mind where you make that decision or is it more of a feel of the scenario kind of thing? Yeah, I think in that particular situation, you know, I did all my normal, you know, checks and there was nothing happening. And you do that pretty quickly. You can do that in 10, 15 seconds and you say, "Uh, this thing can come back to life. Yeah. I mean, no matter what I do, 
What are those basic checks you do in any airplane if you have an engine? Uh, so, you know, uh, for me, I'm going to go check and make sure the fuel is on. Mm-hmm. That's, that's your number one reason why people hang yep. engine quit. Yep. And, and then try the different tank and then see if there's anything happening there. You know, on that th- airplane, you have a fuel pressure gauge and see if you got fuel pressure and you can make it with a wobble pump. Yep. It had. Um, then check mags to see if there's, you know, grounding yep. or chance okay. that there's something happening on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't an icing condition, so you didn't have to worry about, you know, alternative air or anything like that. So, yeah. so we knew that it was getting fuel. You know, there was no spark happening in this engine, and it was not producing any power. And, of course, you're looking at oil pressure to no oil pressure. Yeah, so okay. So pretty clear you got nothing. Yeah. You know, so making that decision actually freed me to just focus on one thing. Mm. Where am I going to put this son of a gun down and do the best job I can? Um, and so I'm lined up for that little pasture pond thing. I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be a rugged ride. But if I can get it on the ground, bounce it hard, kind of slew it sideways, burn up energy, I knew it was going to be hard on the paint of that airplane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted it to be not so hard on the passengers. But that's the key, isn't it, to dissipate that energy. Mm-hmm. You need the space to dissipate the energy, ideally a field where you can roll out. Right. But if that's not available to you, still you just find a way to dissipate that energy, right? That's what's going through your mind? That's right. You know, I'm thinking about a purposeful ground loop, which, you know, you yep. rarely want to do, but this is the best way to burn up energy. Keep it straight, you know, as long as you can, as slow as you can, and then when you get to the end, you know, try and burn it up a little bit through a purposeful ground loop. Yeah. And about that time, uh, I'm lined up for it and saying, well, it's going to be a rough ride, tighten up. And uh, Greg called and he said, boy, if you can make it over that last tree line, if you have enough energy, uh, there's a cornfield that lays out straight for, for your direction of travel, and it's uh, it's got a pivot, you know, an irrigation pivot, so you can line up on it once you can see it. And um, you know, this is uh, early June, so the corn is really low. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even six inches high. Yeah. Okay. And I looked at that field one more time, and I looked at my airspeed because maintaining eighty was kind of in the back of my mind. If I can't maintain eighty, I got to, you know, fly it all the way in. Was our friend Bob who used to say all yep. the way to the crash, yeah. <laughs> as far into the crash as possible. Yeah, that's right. right. Yep. And eighty is about as you know where I knew I still had enough energy. Uh, to lift just about 20 feet over the tree line, which was I was too low to see. Uh, that on the other side of it was a perfectly laid out cornfield, and I committed at that point in time to fly it that direction. Um, and I went through those you know treetops pretty low, um, and I saw the cornfield. And I saw the pivot, and all I did at that point in time was pitch it up for you know basically stalling it in, uh, rolling it out, and I went right down between the rows. And I've got great pictures of that. It must have five or six hundred feet probably. Of mm. space I burned up and uh, soft ground, but hard enough yeah. that the wheels worked out just fine. Now, had I seen that probably originally, I would have probably left the wheels up and skidded down that. Right, yeah. But it worked out just uh, just fine. Yeah, wow. Really helpful use of your wingman there too, though. That's an interesting thing. You 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 accepted advice from your wingman. He offered advice when it was helpful to you. He didn't inundate you. We've seen that, you know, where somebody's just inundating somebody with a problem and they're not really being assistance. Right. But that was pretty pretty uh, important too. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I have to admit, and I'm told that uh, Greg and over time that you know the landing situation was a lot different had I not had him uh, at. Altitude, yeah. seeing there's a much better scenario, likely if you can, if you have the energy. And he did say, you know, to, he didn't obviously try and command or tell me what would be the best in his mind. Yeah, it's left up to the pilot in, in charge. But it was really helpful. I wouldn't have made that decision had I not known it was that good on yeah. the side of the trees because it was not something I could see. Yeah, critical and timely information. You know, not overloading you with stuff that really didn't matter at the time. Right. Yeah. Right. So you ended up. It rolled out, no damage to the airplane or, or anything? Rolled out? And just rolled fine. out right between the rows. Honestly, it's really quite funny. I didn't even have to buy the farmer, you know, an ounce of corn. <laughs> because it rolled out. The farmer came out on his uh, 
uh, four-wheeler. He said, I heard you. I said, no, you didn't hear me. I was a silent guy. <laughs> a couple of this other T6 guys now had joined the, uh, yeah. the hunt. And, and then what are you two all trying to help out and you know, what they're going to do? And, uh, do you remember the radio call after on the ground? And, and we uh, were standing there. And they, uh, one of the guys said, what can I bring you back? I said, well, we need a, need a tow bar. Um, and uh, I said, I'll take a 12-pack of beer. Waldo, what do you want? Because <laughs> <laughs> you do have a little bit of a shaky knee syndrome right after you got out of something like that. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. And also, interesting, it was a 55-hour engine, yeah. right? 55 yeah. hours since overhaul, yeah. I think is what you said. Yeah. And statistically, safety statistics show that a recently overhauled engine is far riskier than a longer-term engine, even one that's beyond TBO, if it's operating correctly, you still got good compression. You still, you know, you're bore scoping it well and all that. So, interesting that you can't really, you don't want to really sit back and think, "Oh, I got a French engine, I'm okay." You're actually in a higher risk scenario. You know, I I, uh, I completely agree with that. You know, what they call infantile failure. Yep. You know, in the first 50 hours or so is is a is an area where we do see more engine failures, mm-hmm. if you will, unfortunately. Uh, and I've had a couple of those experiences that have been the lower time engines that go bad. But I've had them also a thousand hours as well. Yeah. Um, but I think it comes to the point is, you know, know your airplane, know your uh, instruments and know your choices. You know, if, you, if you're high enough, you got some choices. You know, you see some of these folks, you know, zooming around down four or five hundred feet, you know, you know, you got very few choices. You know, that compression of time from, you know, what turned out to be two minutes would have been less than a minute. Yeah. You know, things would turn out a lot differently when you have engine failures way low. Yeah. You and I have talked about that because you like to fly your Super Cub down low. Mm-hmm. That's what they're really made to do, yep. especially, you know, when you have your amphibs on and you're over water. So – and that's kind of hot in the news here lately, you know, some low-altitude flying. So what are your – what's your thoughts on low-altitude flying and what kind of things go through your mind from a safety risk management standpoint? Well, first off, I, uh, I think it's, you know, being at altitude is always a plus, you know, if you're thinking about a safety factor. Uh, and yet I also say that I've flown, yes um, – Super Cub or many float planes, you know, in that 500-foot range for long distances. But generally, I mean, nearly always, having an, have an alternative place to land, either straight ahead over the water uh, or whatever you like to do. Um, so I think that you can do both if you do them with the right kind of mindset about what are my options if it quits now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always unsafe to be at 500 feet if yep. you know where you're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty exciting flying. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, thanks for spending some time with us and uh, and talking through some of your uh, some of your scenarios. Um, we we enjoyed the time. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. And hope uh, hope the audience is, uh, as we always do, learn something from it and can think about it. What an interesting conversation with Mark Baker to hear about how he's flown safely for over ten thousand hours in over a hundred different GA airplanes. And as you could hear, he's had some pretty challenging situations that he's found himself in. One thing I really appreciate about Mark is despite all of his experience in all the airplanes he's flown, he actively keeps his head in uh, safety and training information. He'll text me throughout the week uh, having a comment or asking a question about a scenario or a mishap that he's seen. Uh, He frequently reviews our materials and he'll have comments on it to help us make it better. Um, So... I think, you know, when you look at a guy that's flown that many hours and that many airplanes and had the number of situations he's had, how has he been able to do that so safely? Part of his secret is he keeps his head in the game and he accesses safety material on a routine basis, and that's probably instructional for all of us. Thanks for joining us on There I Was. Until next time, I'm Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. 
There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. 